You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Buckle, 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 buckle. <laughs> you know the deal. Welcome to this edition of Can We Talk? Uh, I'm Marquise, uh, filling in for everyone, everyone <laughs> <laughs> who's out on assignment uh, today. And uh, I'm Shana, just uh, me and Marquise and our guest today. Yeah, so we so we we have a, a, a I think is a really good show, a really good conversation uh, coming up for today, uh, talking about growing up in Detroit. And uh, attending uh, Detroit schools, like growing up in, um, in 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 the Detroit area, and uh, what it's like to grow up in the city and attend uh, Detroit schools. And uh, our special guest today is uh, Emmett Mitchell. Uh, he is the head of his own agency called the Milestone Agency. And uh, Emmett uh, and myself got together probably back in 2012 and he came and spoke to my uh, mentoring group and we have uh just hit it off ever since uh he's a great guy and does a lot of work uh in in and around the community we're going to have him you know tell us about that and tell us how uh listeners can also uh connect with the milestone agency emmett welcome to uh can we talk thank you brother marquise i appreciate that so let's get right in it. Uh, it, it, it. Emmett, tell us about uh, where you grew up and uh, what schools you attended in the city. Oh, wow. So, so my, my, my primary area of growth was on the west side of Detroit, in between the box of Joy Road, Livernois, Tyerman, and Grand River. Um, one, of the, one of the most notable landmarks in that area would be Steve's Soul Food right there on the corner of Grand River oh, yeah. and, and Maplewood. And so we were relatively close to the downtown area, probably about four or five minutes driving off 96, going towards the lodge to, to the uh, downtown area. And uh, when I moved to that neighborhood, it was a relatively stable, um, lower to middle class neighborhood. As a matter of fact, I had about three or four of my actual elementary and elementary school teachers who actually lived on the same block as I did. Wow. And, and, and so to have uh, your teachers living on the same uh, block in the same area as you, what what did that do in terms of, uh, you know, helping you mentally uh, uh, with, you know, education? Well, let me say it. Let me say it a little different. But because they were like our mothers, it, it appeared that they were our teachers. But I, I never actually had any of them to be my teacher, particularly. However, but growing up around Miss Anderson and Miss Jennings in our neighborhood, it, it, it gave us an understanding of what the expectation on our particular block was. Our, our block was, um, it, it was an interesting block because it had a myriad of professionals on the block. And so when we first moved over to that, into that neighborhood, um, we had individuals who were working in the automotive industry, individuals who were working in education, individuals who were working in the um, medical industry. And you saw people getting up, going to work every morning, which gave you the expectation of what you probably should be doing when you became an adult. All right. And Shana, tell us a little bit about you know, where you grew up. Um, I grew up. On um, in the Finkel Evergreen area, mm-hmm. it's also known as Brightmore. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Brightmore Clinic was right on the corner of my block. Um, I actually did not attend Detroit public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Catholic school. Okay, Catholic school in the city. Catholic school in the city. Okay, yeah. So still a Detroit school. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So it, it, so Emmett, tell us. What, paint a picture for us, uh, if you if you would. What does uh, education in the city for a, a Detroit youth look like in 2017 versus when you were a kid? So on the so on the end of the end, which I, which we can say is maybe 1995 ish to 2000 with history. 
will still be preeminent um, employer for people in the Midwest, particularly, and people of color all over this country. There was still a there was still an important emphasis to educate minority men of need no longer exists. And so the Department of Education and people who are responsible for building and developing curriculums no longer have an interest in making sure that minorities in America have basic skills when they leave high school. Now school has developed into a, the system has developed to where you have to work really, really hard to make yourself, to put yourself in a position to be deserving of a quality education. Any misbehaving or haphazard attitudes towards your education will deem you to be locked out of the educational process, which in essence is what the, the system that we are dealing with wants. They want to educate the least amount of minorities as possible. They want to prepare minorities to move into a direction where they become servants of this system, meaning prison industrial complex servants, meaning being in prison, meaning individuals that will work for a basic wage and where that basic wage is the controlling factor in your life. So now we are dealing with an educational system that wants to induce social compliance, prepare next, the next generation of leaders to do their job. And we and minorities particularly will not be the next generation of generations of leaders for America. And then to prepare our young ladies for welfare and then prepare our young men for prison. So those are the goals of the current system of education. In 1960, 1970, 1980, the goal was to prepare minorities to work in a plant in a in a in an era where the industrial revolution was still moving in a direction to where industry needed the manpower. As we move away from that, you will you will see um, American government become disinterested in educating black children and brown children which will force black children and brown children and their parents to push the door open and demand to be educated fairly. That will not happen in America, so we will be forced to educate ourselves, which is probably the best option anyway. When did it change? You know, you talked about the, uh, the prison pipeline and, and uh, um, setting you know, women up for welfare and men up for prison. When did that change? So it changed 15 years ago. America's agenda changes in, in um, generational spurts. And right now we are in an era where the majority of the, the um, economy is built on financial literacy, um, financial uh, analysis, insurance, um, money market products, and things that where America does not actually produce a product to sell. What America sells now and what America makes the majority of their money off of is debt and handling Americans' money. And minorities, quite frankly, will not be educated and prepared to work in that particular sector of American, uh, eco- the American economy. And so the day where a laborer had a... Um, could earn a premium wage is starting to disappear. And it began about 15 years ago. And so now the new agenda for America is to keep Americans in debt and to make money off of the actual body of human beings that they actually will never employ. So if you can't be employed, you have to feed yourself and your family in some capacity. So you can start your own business or you can make bad choices. And America is banking on a lot of our, our youth, minorities particularly, to make bad choices because we are, now, we are now being bred to be the burden bearers for the real citizens, quote, unquote, of this nation. I hate to say it that way. It does not necessarily have to be that way if each individual and each individual family do what is necessary for themselves to build what they need in order to function in America and then teach their offspring and the generations after them to come to do the same thing. But the reality is you have to start this conversation now because a lot of people can't think outside of the box because they don't even realize that they are inside of a box. But this is America's agenda. You can look at what's going on around you. 
You can look at what is making money now, and you can look at how the majority of Americans are not, if they're not in debt, they are on their, they are being groomed to be in debt, even starting with college tuition. And so debt, insurance, uh, money marketing, hedge funds, um, collateral um, debt obligations or CDOs, and all of these different money market accounts and products are the way America is making its money now. And they even borrow money from other countries in order to use, and they use the human human um, cattle here in America as their actual collateral when they are going in debt with these other countries, banking on a bear. Moving this conversation back to education, when you're talking about education, what, what is actually happening here? A lot of our inner city youth are not being educated. And that there was the, the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that the, the Pittsburgh public school system was not obligated to provide the citizens of Pittsburgh a quality education. There is nowhere in our Constitution or in the Michigan Constitution where it says that the government is responsible for educating the youth. And so with that language not existing, there was just some legislation that just passed. As a matter of fact, my daughter was a part of a social justice network of young people who took um, the, the Michigan, Michigan State government and the Michigan Department of Education to court to create, a, create legislation where literacy would become mandated by the state of Michigan. And that law was, that legislation was struck down because that opens up the door for education to be mandated and quality education to be mandated. And so if you, even if you analyze the legislation, Michigan and all of the other states in this country do not want to be forced to provide quality education because that will force my, that will put minorities in a position to compete economically, globally, and here in America for the jobs that they want to keep open for privileged people. And that's just the reality that we're dealing with. You spoke a little while ago about, um, you know, the labor and talking about low skill um, jobs, you know, them being set up for low skill jobs. Um, I wanted to, you know, ask you, Emmett, isn't that a lot like uh, how, um, you know, some whites feel uh, when they feel that, uh, you know, I've heard several times that, uh, you know, some whites, you know, feel the way they feel and voted for Donald Trump, you know, and, and things of that sort, because, they feel like that uh, more incentives and jobs are being created for uh, the minority and given to the minority, and they are being trampled over. So, what? What? Right. I, I guess if you could explain what's what's the difference between the way they feel in some sort, like they're being pushed to a, a low skill, um, you know, basic uh, labor jobs, or their their jobs are diminishing uh, in the way that uh, the African American uh, may feel about the same thing. Well, that's a that's a great that's a phenomenal question. So, I'm this is, I'm let, let me start it like this with a few raw numbers, and these numbers are raw. These are some numbers that I probably analyzed maybe a year ago, but I think that they're still going to be relevant. Um, the unemployment rate in America is it normally is around somewhere about four point eight to five point five percent, right? Okay. So, so some Americans may have a legitimate issue with what you just, with the question that you just posed to me. But the reality is that in America, 25% of black people who live in America are unemployed. In addition to that, in the Midwest, Chicago, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan area, 90% of black teenagers are unemployed. And so, so while some, some individuals may have a legitimate gripe because of their individual circumstance, the numbers suggest that the majority of individuals that are unemployed in America are minorities. And so that's why I spoke to that. So while some may complain, we have more people that are in a legitimate position to complain. In addition to that, again, raw numbers, but a white male with no college education whatsoever is two times more likely to receive the same job that a black male with a a college degree would receive. So we are talking about real-life privilege that is provided for some 
and then which in turn has to become a real life oppression for others. In order for some people to be privileged, others have to be oppressed, whether it's by design, by mistake, or whether it's on purpose. That's just the reality of what we're dealing with. And um, so I would encourage the listeners to go do some research on those numbers. I'm pretty close. I'm pretty sure. I discuss these things quite often. And so the reality is that the numbers would suggest that at particularly black people who live in America are in a, a, a much dire strait and in, a, in a more of a need educational, um, real education, um, real opportunities at employment. But the true solution will be for individuals, for individual families to educate their children, to own their own businesses and provide services to their people. But if you're talking about education and as it relates to the relationship that it has with job opportunities, this is a real life situation that we are dealing with. And it is something that we absolutely have to discuss when you're talking about low quality education to minorities and how that morphs into no opportunities for basic skilled jobs and, and, and jobs with decent wages where a man can take care of his family. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is uh, Can We Talk, and our crew is out <laughs> on assignment today. Uh, the rest of our crew, so it's uh, me and uh, Shana today. And we are talking to uh, Emmett Mitchell, who is um, just a lead over his uh, over his uh, agency called the Milestone Agency, and he does a lot of work in the city of Detroit, in the schools, and uh, in a lot of the agencies around uh, the city of Detroit. And so we're talking today about growing up in Detroit and gro- going to Detroit schools, and what's that? What does that look like in 2017? Um, Shane, you said you went to... I went to Catholic school in the city of Detroit. And um, I think, like, what it looked like for me then is kind of what it looks like now. Um, I didn't have a black teacher. And, you know, studies show that that is very important, you know, for a high school graduation race for black children Mm -hmm. to have a black teacher. Um, And now I see, because my daughter's in school... And I, I rarely see any black black teachers. And I don't think, um, like most white teachers, most white women know how to deal with black children. Mm. I was having um, a conversation, you know, with, with a friend a couple of weeks back. And I was telling her, like, I learned how to be dismissive of black men from school. Mm. They were... I acted out, but I wasn't sent to the principal's office. I wasn't sat outside the hallway. I was a class clown, but the black boy that was a class clown, he had to go. Wow, okay. So the discipline looked very different for you than it did for the young man. Yes. Young man had to be put out of the class. He had to be suspended, sent home. What happened with you? I was allowed to stay in the classroom. I I could write. I would not disturb the class, but I was I wasn't put out. Right. I may have gotten a phone call home, but I wasn't dismissed. And, Emmett, why do you think something like that happens? Why do you think that discipline looks totally different in schools uh, for the, the black male versus the, uh, the uh, African-American female? Right, well, the, rea- the reality is this. Um, 90, over 90% of the classrooms in America have a, a lead teacher that is a is European-American woman. And the, the cultural difference, a difference between what a, a, a young white teen, female teacher has learned in her community is phenomenally profound when she has to go into a classroom and try to understand a black boy that comes from an inner city community in, in one of these inner cities in America. The reality is this. Um, you cannot educate a child if you have whole fear and contempt in your heart for that child. European-American women are raised at, at a very young age to steer clear of black males and to keep a very close and watchful eye on them when they are in the same area with black males. This is what they are being taught at home. So when you go into the classroom, you have the same the educational experiences and socialization process, you're bringing that into the classroom from your childhood 
from mom and dad. That is just a reality, and that is what we deal with. In addition to that, black boys are never given an opportunity to express the, the cultural feelings that they possess in coming from the environment that they come from. The school environment is not built for that. It is not interested in what the black boy goes through. And if he is, if he is not capable of sitting down and being quiet and behaving like a good boy, then there is no place in the classroom for him. And that was what I was discussing when I was saying that the black boys are being pushed out of education right. and you have to fight to receive a quality education. Right. The reality is there is no room in America for a black boy that misbehaves. There is room for a black male who conforms. There is room for black males who stay in their place. But there is no room in America for a black boy who wants to speak his mind, um, express himself in any capacity that is not in alignment with what is happening in the classroom. In addition to that, the curriculums that were developed, and we can talk about the Prussian system of education, which is the system that we use here that King Frederick actually enacted in order to keep people in, al in alignment with what his agenda was for his country. So if you look at how the classroom is set up, it is an authoritarian classroom with one person standing at the front controlling the entire class, everyone in roles, and everyone having to fall in line. That's not necessarily the cultural rhythm of black people that, kind of, that have come to America, but black women are able to adapt a little quicker because, quite frankly, our black girls are a little bit more mature than our black boys in a lot of instances, and black boys are, have the, the testosterone and the energy always, always buzzing on the inside. And so it's very difficult for a black boy not to express himself kinesthetically, and it is very difficult for a teacher that is not of African descent to understand that energy. And black boys are more successful in the classroom when they are exposed to black administrators, black teachers, and black other black people who understand them. Because let's be frank, when a white teacher looks at a black boy, they do not see their son. So you don't get extra chances. But when a white, when a white teacher sees another white student, they see their own child more often. And if they see a black female, they have a different expectation of that black female because the black female in some instances is capable of being of understanding what the job is and what the role is in the classroom and able to push that agenda forward and now that's not necessarily to say that all black boys don't get it done but the ones that we experience and encounter every day as they all come with a different set of circumstances whether it be fatherlessness whether it be things going on in the home and what have you and those things come into the classroom with them. They need someone that understands that and can meet them at the classroom door with an open mind and getting them to understand that while I'm going to hold you accountable for education, I want to understand what is happening at home so I can help you on that level too. And when you can build a strong relationship with a black boy, he will run through a brick wall for you, and he will jump over it and do whatever is asked. But the reality is in the classroom, with the majority of the classrooms being led by white women, they have no interest in building real strong, lasting bonds with black boys. And so the tolerance level for anything that goes on in the classroom for a black boy is zero. You know, you, you were, you, you, you really hit um, the nail on the head uh, with what you were talking about in terms of, um, um, you know, educating uh, African-American males, you know, definitely for myself, you know, working in education and being a dean of students over the last uh, four years, um, you know, I've seen it, you know, first and foremost, um, where the young man is, you know, put out of the class for very um, minute things. You know, you would think that the kid could just, you know, a conversation with the kid or something would be enough. But the first, re you know, reaction is always, uh, it, it, you know, now, now that I'm thinking about it, you brought that to light. It, it, it tends to always be um, get out, you know, go go to the counselor, you know, go down the hall, go to the principal, you know, step outside the class. And, um, you know, we have to, you know, take into consideration, like uh, like you said, uh, imminent, uh, about uh, the, the culture and what it is that the the 
kid is dealing with where, from where they're coming from. Talk a little bit about about that. I don't think sometimes, you know, people really understand what a kid goes through outside of school in their uh, environment before even stepping into the school doors to get an education. Uh, you know, things that they're dealing with in their own communities and in their own uh, families uh, before they even hit the school doors. So, Emmett, talk a little bit about what you see and what you've seen, you know, in your work. What Paint a picture of what that looks like for that young man or young woman um, before they even hit hit the school. Like, what challenges are they dealing with before they even Absolutely. get to a school? Absolutely, I will. But I would be remiss if I didn't greet, greet the Queen, Shana. I apologize for not speaking to you initially. The, uh, the radio show or any other show in this world does not function without with the melanated estrogen of our queen. So um, I'm, I'm just bidding you agree. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so I am the executive director of the Milestones Agency of Metro Detroit, where our mission, a part of our mission statement is to educate, motivate, and empower black boys, transform them into husbands, fathers, leaders, and scholars. And, we came up with the idea to start to service black boys because of all of the things that we deal with as black males here in America. The reality is this. A lot of our black boys are growing up in single-parent households, yearning to have a relationship with fathers, where some of these fathers are sometimes, sometimes incarcerated, but sometimes these fathers live three blocks away. I have three boys that I work with consistently, and they can pull up on the block on any given day and pull up and talk to their father yet they only see him once or twice every two or three months. And so there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of confusion going on in the hearts and in the spirits of our black boys and our black girls. Our black girls yearn to be raised by their fathers, yearn to be loved, yearn to be protected by them, and to know that when there is a problem that they can call their father. To not have that is to walk around in this world feeling unprotected and uncovered which you can sometimes make bad choices and seek comfort and seek refuge in the wrong places and make the wrong choices and start to resent your own existence, resent your mother, resent education, resent authority, and literally make a decision that no one will be able to tell me anything because no one is take, doing the things that I need to be fed spiritually and emotionally and even physically with just a basic hug. So why would education be important? Why would getting to school on time be important? Why would listening to my teacher be important when I'm not getting the basic love and nurturing that I need from the people who are responsible for me? It makes, absolutely, it makes absolute sense to me. Now, sometimes we will have children who will work beyond those things and say, because these things are not going my way, I'm going to make sure that I am a success. But the reality is that is too much to put on a child at an early age. We have some special and gifted people in the world who persevere, but the reality is there are some things where you should not have to persevere through at 12 years old. You should not have to wake up and feed your little brother because your mother is not, doesn't have, does, is not woke to do so and a father is not there. You should not have to be responsible for taking care of children in the wee hours of the night because your mother works midnight and then get up and go to school in the morning. These are unfair circumstances. Yet some of us, we work through them, but they should not exist. So if 10% of the people who are exposed to these circumstances are successful, I tip my hat to them, and I, I, I applaud them for being great. But the reality is we should not force our children to have to respond to these types of circumstances at an early age. And this is, these are the realities, the realities that we deal with. It is a, it is a spiritual and physical, I mean, spiritual and psychological war going on with our children when they have to walk past vacant houses all the time, when they have to walk to school and deal with all of the environmental circumstances that breed, um, um, that, that go against protective factors. All of these risk factors play a part in even a child being interested in being educated. And so we as educators and then individuals who want to actually educate children, sometimes we'll say, well, why won't you just get it? Don't you understand that there's a strong relationship between your success as an adult and what you do here in this school? But the reality is they don't care because they are, there are people in this world, 
that were responsible for them and that are responsible for them that they believe are not caring for them correctly. And that's the, re- that's the reality of this situation. And so my suggestion, or if we, if we would talk about solutions, is that we have to pinpoint the children who are dealing with these things, and we have to dig deep into the background of these children and put these parents and the people in, that are responsible for these children in a position to succeed. And so when we first started out educating black boys and empowering black boys, we realized that we're working with these boys two, three hours a day, but we are sending them back to environments that are not conducive to their success. And so we were working backwards. And so we had to broaden all of our services to help the fathers get jobs, help the mothers get opportunities and resources in the community. And so you have to do all of these things. The reality is that we are so culturally confused that we need every resource to provide the balance and homeostasis and what I call the ma'at, the Egyptian term for harmony and balance. To provide these things, we need everybody working in unison. We need our clergy or our our faith-based organizations. We need our educational system. We need the homes, and then we need all of our community service organizations to be working in a, in a, in a square, in a fourfold. But the reality is that everyone has their own agenda, and we have individuals who are interested in doing this work, and they are the only saving grace, the buffers in the education system, because the educational system as it is set up is, is dangerous to the black child. And faith-based organizations are not as interested in protecting our children as they should be. And the community service organizations don't have the finances and resources that they should have, which forces them to behave like corporate entities. And then the families are suffering. So the reality is that all we are holding on to are the individuals who are trying to do these things. But the conglomerates and the groups and the organizations either are not interested in doing the work or don't have the resources to do the work to get these young children on a spiritual and emotional balance to walk into a school setting and perform. Why is it, in your opinion, uh, do um, does it seem like uh, our you know clergy, our faith-based community, um, why do you feel like, I mean, why does it seem like they're not doing enough in terms of uh, the resources that they could provide to um, you know, kids in inner city. If we had enough time, I could explain how the faith-based organizations in the inner cities would be responsible for opening their doors Monday through Friday to provide African-centered private school settings for our children here in the United States of America. But on a basic level, this is where the black family extracts the majority of their hope and their ability and their strength to move forward in a country where we are, like I said, culturally confused. We are living in culturally, we're living in a culturally confusing or a culturally foreign land. Mm-hmm. No matter how long we have been on this soil, no matter, no matter how many generations of black people who have lived on American soil, our cultural rhythms will and always remain the same. When you ask a person where they are from and they are not of African descent, when you ask them who they are, their name has a relationship with where they are from, and they maintain their cultural rhythm and their cultural norms. You will ask a European-American here in America, who are you? And their last name is Looney. They will say that I am Irish. My grandfather was from Ireland, and they will tell you that they are Irish. When we speak, we speak of being African-Americans, which is a culturally confusing term in and of itself, because America really has no interest even in claiming us as Americans. The reality, and being an African-American is like saying I'm a short, tall person. You can't be an African and be American at the same time. I know that we've accepted this term to be the law. I know that what I just said is controversial, but the reality is that there is no such thing as an African-American. But I said that to say this, our clergy are the last line of hope, faith, and defense for the black family, and they are failing us miserably. And the reason why they are failing us is because they are not teaching us how to develop economically and develop socially, but they are teaching us how to develop spiritually. And spiritual development, absent social and economic and emotional development, is only that, spiritual development. 
in addition to that, the spiritual development, for the most part, is based in a Christian ideology that is the antithesis of what our cultural rhythms tell us based on the, the part of Africa we come from, normally West Africa. Yes, I know that there were Christians in the Sudanese part of Africa. Yes, I do realize that Christianity has been here for a number of years. But the form of Christianity that we subscribe to here in America is the antithesis of our cultural and spiritual rhythms in which we are grounded in. And so it creates a cultural confusion and a misunderstanding of who we are spiritually and culturally. And so when you talk about that, what we are doing is we would be blindly following something that could be potentially damaging to us, and it is not challenging us to see things from the perspective that will get us to, quote-unquote, pick ourselves by our boots, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it teaches us to sit idle and wait on something to happen based on faith. Faith without works is dead, the great Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for many, many years, but until I started to pray with my feet, nothing happened. Wow. That's deep. <laughs> Appreciate that. I mean, if you're just tuning in again, uh, this is uh, Can We Talk? Uh, and you just got uh, me, Marquise, and Shana today uh, as our other crew is out on assignment uh, for uh, today. And uh, we're talking to uh, Emmett Mitchell, who has his own agency uh, helping uh, to uplift uh, young African-American uh, males in the city of Detroit. And um, we just having a very candid conversation about growing up in in Detroit and, and what education looks like um, from a holistic point of view for the, um, the, the, the kid growing up in the city. Uh, here in 2017. And so, uh, Shane, did you, have, you had a question, didn't you? Uh, well, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off something that Emmett said about, like, what our children deal with outside of school. Uh, Detroit is a very impoverished city, and I, I'm, I am of the belief that poverty is violence, and violence is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And um, Emmett was correct with saying that we need extra resources to make sure that these children are okay. Because a lot of these children aren't okay when they come to school. Mm-hmm. See, I was just uh, want to piggyback off something that he said. And, and, so let me so let, let me say this real quick. So, miseducation and economic castration are the mother and fathers of violence, like Shana just alluded to. And this is the area that we are in. So you can expect, and and this is even in other communities that are not predominantly black. When the unemployment rate goes up, so does crime. And that is in every single demographic in America. So why would it be different in the black community, particularly in Detroit, where in upward of 46% of the people who live in the city of Detroit are unemployed? So that was just kind of piggybacking off Shana's point as well. What, what uh, are some of the solutions, y'all, for... for what we I know you just spoke about you know um, an African uh, centered education uh, you know taught through um, the the church, um, but what are some of the other solutions? Um, should we just shut down education uh, uh, for part of the day and just spend maybe the first half of the day dealing with social, emotional, and economical issues that our kids are dealing with? I mean, our kids come to school and, uh, you know, like Emmett uh, said, after dealing with some, you know, very serious, uh, um, serious uh, things outside of school in terms of their home life. Uh, I can remember last year uh, a student um, who came to school the, the day of the uh, a test, major test we were getting ready to take that day and uh, when he came to school he came right to my office and and, you know he was one of the more behaviorally challenged kids so he said mr herring can i um you got something to eat and i didn't even pay any attention to him i looked up at the clock and was like no go to class you're you're late so you know he left you know um walked away kind of mumbled something under his breath but he walked away the bell rings i'm standing in the hallway 
comes back up to me again, Mr. Heron, you ain't got nothing to eat. You don't have nothing to eat. And so this point, at this point, of course, he, he asked me again. So now I'm paying a little more attention to what he's saying. So um, I'm like, man, why do you keep asking me, do I have something to eat? Like, man, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, get ready to take. You, you have a test to take in a minute. And he's like, well, Mr. Herring, uh, I haven't ate anything since, like, Saturday night. And it's Monday morning. And I pause for a second to, like, really, like, even as adults, we need to take a moment to really take in what it is that they just said to us. You know, like, it, it caught me off guard. He said, I haven't ate anything since Saturday night. So you're asking me to come in and, and learn algebra and learn English and, and to sit starving. in my seat and I'm starving. And that's a lot about uh, like what a lot of our kids deal with on a daily basis. I, I, I've been wrecking my brain as to how do we deal with that? I mean, when you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, at the very basic beginning of that is uh, food and safety, you know, and shelter. Some of our kids are, don't even have those things, and we're talking about trying to educate them. Wow, you you brought up a, a really good point. And so, to be honest with you, Brother Marquise, I don't think that as a community we are really prepared for the true solution to the issues and challenges that plague the black family here in America because we are not willing to give up, to take back the responsibility of taking care of ourselves and our children. We give the responsibility of ed our children being educated by individuals who do not care about our care about our safety, our future, our economic stability, and our community. And in order to change the paradigm, we have to educate our own children. The reality is that the ninety ninety eight thousand DPS kids or, or kids that go to school in the Detroit area have to be pulled out of public school education and they have to be educated privately. We have to build, and so that is a daunting task. It's not possible logistically. However, what is possible is to start to do these things. You start to create and build your own African-centered institutions. You build your own African-centered schools. A good brother of mine, I've been in discussions with a good brother named Marcus Klein. He had the Nkrumah Institute in Chicago and some other places around the um, United States of America. This brother is brilliant, and he has built some curriculum to educate our children that destroy the curriculum. It blows the curriculum that we are used to out of the better. These children are five to six times smarter, retaining two to three times more information and more relevant information that is culturally relevant to who they are and what they will need to be who they are. The, the, um, the, uh, the great brother, Dr. Amos Wilson, before he passed, said that true education teaches a child how to solve their problems and the problems in their community. So I will ask you and the listeners Education in America teach us how to solve the problems for ourselves and our community. I know that that answer is an emphatic no. So education is not doing the correct job for us. The reality is that the smart kids that are going to go to college are going to go to college anyway. But to save the borderline children, we have to create a new education system, a private African-centered education that is culturally responsive to these children. And the parents have to scrape up some a little bit of money to make sure that these Teachers are adequately compensated. Well, we have 95,000 students in, in the city of Detroit. We have about 6,600 teachers and administrators here in the city of Detroit. If we, do, if we build and plan things correctly, we could build a system where all the teachers that are interested in maintaining um, a, in a, a job opportunity with educating our kids could maintain that. Um, it would be a little bit different. We would have to build the infrastructure. It can be done, but the way that it's probably going to happen is by starting with African-centered schools one by one by one and then start building African-centered school systems until eventually we saturate inner cities with African-centered school systems where we don't have to worry about our children being miseducated by individuals who have no interest in educating them and providing them an education where they will compete with their children 
um, economic global in, in this global economy that we are dealing with. We also need to build an economic uh, African-centered economy, infrastructure, where we understand that we spend our money with our people and we make sure that our money bounces in our community five, six, seven times the same way the Asians and the Europeans and the Jews do with their money so we can build businesses that can hire our children if they decide not to go to college and decide that they want to work directly out of high school, we can provide those opportunities for them. And we also can provide them with opportunities to feed themselves while they are young with summer jobs and things like that so they can have an opportunity to function and be balanced every day. And if you study the five, uh, Dr. Umar's five functions of behavior, not being able to eat and not being properly hydrated and not being in a comfortable climate is one of the reasons why our black children misbehave in the school setting. Thanks again for that, uh, um, Emmett. You, we have about uh, four minutes left uh, on the show for today. I uh, wanted to ask you um, really quick, why do you think it's not more of an outcry about um, what is really going on in, in urban areas? Why is it something that you think is not talked about enough? Do you think it's a plan for it to that it's a plan? It's planned for it uh, to be uh, hidden, even though it's a, it's a really an epidemic in our in our community. Wow, you use a good a, a word. The word "hidden" makes me think of um, Brother Tariq Nasheed's "Hidden Colors," one, two, three, and four. The reality is this: America is like our parent, Brother Marquis. They're like our father, our mother, like a cool parent that beats us and hurts us and harms us but gives us just enough to where we literally don't collapse and die and yet and then you figure you got a family of six or seven children one one maybe one child out of the family may be given a particular set of privileges because of a specific agenda that mom and dad had to make sure that the other six or seven children suffer so the majority of the individuals in America, black people in America, don't even realize that they are suffering. Because we were born into this madness, we believe that it is our norm. And so just because something is normal does not make it natural. Right. You can be in prison for 15 years and it becomes your norm, but it's not natural for a human being to be in a cage. So we're dealing with a situation in America that is normal to us, but it is not natural to us. And, and we don't even understand that we are oppressed and that we are repressed in certain instances here in America. Because I actually heard someone, and I don't want to disrespect a person's livelihood, but I'm going to be honest with you. Someone was celebrating 30 years at Ford. But in my mind, that was 30 years on a plantation. Because if you are working a job that is getting another man wealthy and he's paying you, you are doing nothing more but getting that man wealthy. You are receiving a wage for your body and your, for your skills and your mind. And, and, and we do want jobs. But it is important for us to teach our children to build jobs. Getting a job is the norm. Going to go to school, go to college, get a job. That's what we're taught. That's the norm. But the reality is you educate yourself with all of the knowledge that you can acquire and you build a business and you, and you hire your family and your people. That's what we should be saying. That should be our new norm. But our norm is something that we have been taught since the day that we stepped foot on this soil, and that is to do it the American way. The American way is dangerous and detrimental to our people, our spirit, and our culture, and we don't even understand anything else. And so, like I said, we can't think outside the box because we don't even know that we're boxed in. What uh, would you say, um, you know, what, what do you see, how do you see uh, education in the city looking in the next five to ten years? I see the educational system eventually pulling the rug from up under education for minorities in inner cities. Uh, they want all of those resources to go to West Bloomfield, to Birmingham, to Bingham Farms, to Gross Point. So they would, they would just as soon not educate black children at all and allow black children to figure education out on their own. So we need to prepare to build our own African-centered um, educational centers anyway. Because if you notice all of the schools being closed down in clusters, what they are doing is trying to put, put us in a position to where we are forced to 
do something different. They are at the point, the government and the Michigan Department of Education is at its wit's end with educating black children. They no longer are interested in doing it. And the faster we understand that real fact, the better off we will be. That is why we are being mistreated. It is no different than a relationship between a man and a woman where he does not respect his woman and he mistreats her. He would just as soon get rid of her, but if she's going to stay and keep being abused, he'll just keep abusing her. And that's what we're dealing with right now with education in America and inner cities all over the United States. Okay. I, with the Detroit uh, public school system, I, in about 10 to 15 years or maybe less, I believe will be absolved and will be mostly or all charter. Like in, I believe in New Orleans, it's all charter. There is no public school system in New Orleans. I didn't know that. When school will become privatized, and once school becomes privatized, just like any other service that is provided, once it becomes private, the person who owns it makes the rules. And so once um, the United States can wash their hands of prisons and private, keep make them all private, education make it all private, we can't blame the government for all of our boys going straight from school, from third grade to prison. The, and, and hence, the prison to the, the school-to-prison pipeline. So once, we, once they privatize everything, they're no longer responsible for us. So we need, to, we need to privatize our own educational system and make it an African-centered education system. We actually are being pushed into that direction anyway. America has no interest in educating minorities, no interest whatsoever. All right. Uh, Emmett, just uh, tell our, our listeners... Um how can they find out more about uh, your agency and what you do and how could they get in touch with you? Awesome. Any, any parents who are interested in enrolling young boys between the ages of 11 to 18 in our survivor success and leadership training program can reach us at 313-444-2055. I invite and encourage everybody to go to our website, www.themilestonesagency.org. And you can reach us at info at the milestonesagency.org via email. Again, that's 313-444-2055. That is www.themilestonesagency.org for the website and info at the milestonesagency.org for our email address. Good brother Marquise and Shana, I appreciate you both for having me on the show today. You guys were awesome and um, I can't wait. I can't wait to link up with you again and do this real soon. You were awesome as well. I know you're out taking your daughter back to school, so uh, be safe out there on the roads, and uh, we'll definitely look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you again, Emmett. Definitely. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. All right. And for our listeners, uh, just in case you didn't catch that, the uh, Milestone Agency is enrolling young men between the ages of 11 and 18, and you can call for more information at 313-444-444. Two zero five five. Shane, any last few words we got before we get out of here? I just want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot in this conversation, and I will. Um, I can't wait to you know dig deeper into we you know when we expand the conversation into the entire school system. Definitely, it was really good conversation. Yes. Um, Emmett touched on a lot of great things, man, and it was very enlightening. Uh, also, before I get out of here, just want to give our thoughts and. Prayers to our fellow Americans down in Florida who are uh, just getting hammered right now by uh, Hurricane Irma, who's making his way through that state right now. So our thoughts and prayers to you uh, in the next coming days and weeks and months as you guys begin to rebuild uh, there in uh, Florida. Thanks again. Look forward to the crew being back next week. Oh, uh, yeah. Happy birthday, Anthony. He's out <laughs> celebrating his birthday out of town. Yeah, Happy birthday, Ant-Man. Hope you enjoyed yourself. So uh, this has been Can We Talk? You have a great day, and we'll see you again.